reading. I'll be reading out of 1 John chapter 2, 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Tracy. Good morning, everybody. Go ahead and open your Bibles there to that letter written by John, 1 John. We'll stay in chapter 2 today. Uh, Now, our passage this morning, it's really a neat little passage. It's very tightly uh, written, very compact, but it's loaded with meaning. And John is talking about a subject here that is very important to us, but it's also very easy to misunderstand what he's saying. When Scripture is telling us not to love the world, what does that mean? That is the only command in our text, and the rest of the passage this morning supports that. But let me ask you this. John says, love not the world. But didn't God create the world? And each time he created something new, like when there was light, he said, it is good. Didn't God enter the created order through Jesus? And John himself, maybe in the most famous verse in Scripture, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but will have eternal life. Then John goes in this letter and says, Love not the world. You're killing me, John. So it's a good thing to love the world. It's a bad thing to love the world. So uh, do I have you guys all confused yet? Yep, it kind of freaked me out when I started studying. I'm like, how am I going to communicate this? But you know, sometimes the Bible speaks of the world as a sinful system of thinking. And at other times, the Bible speaks of the world as the material world the created order, right? Now, we're supposed to love the material world. We're supposed to use it appropriately in its proper order. God created it for our use, even in our care. You get, it's okay to be a Christian environmentalist even, okay? But at the same time, okay, at the same time, we're supposed to also hate the system by which we think of the material world as the ultimate as being all there is and being above God. So this is the world that John is talking about, the misuse of the material world. So in order to get it right this morning, I kind of gave you the answer there at the end, didn't I? But in order to get it right, we are going to do the work together, okay? We're going to go to God's word. We're going to see what it says to us, okay? Three things about love, not the world, okay? Listen, love in the world, that's our first point. We've got to define terms. What is love and what is the world? Not love and thunder, okay? 
love in the world. You can laugh. It's okay. We're lighthearted here, okay? So love in the world is first. Secondly, the main causes we love the world, the pride of life. That's our second point, the pride of life. So love in the world, the pride of life. And lastly, how can we abide forever like John says in this passage? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you so much. We thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the created world. And we pray that you would help us to understand uh, what it means to appropriately uh, enjoy your creation, Lord, uh, while loving you above all things. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So our very first verse, verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. Now, before we can love not the world and understand what all that means, we have to answer those two questions, right? And the first one is, what is love? Now, the root Greek here for the love in this passage is agape, because there's different types of love in Scripture. And as Christians, we all know that agape is that super love, okay? It's that godly, perfect love, right? One of my old Puritans describes agape love like this. He says, it's when we rest completely contented and satisfied in something, so much so that you will never need anything else. That is a powerful love, isn't it? And he also says that when you love something like this, that when you have it, it's your one chief good. It is the one thing after which you need nothing else. So it is an all-consuming love. So with this kind of love, you can only love one thing at a time. Look at the second half of verse 15. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So it can never be love of the world and love of the Father. You can't have those two things together. It has to be love of the world or love of the Father. Love of the world and love of the Father cannot coexist in the same space. And if you're here this morning, and I want you to examine your own hearts, and your love is cooled for God, if your heart is cooled, it might be because love of the world has started to choke it out. The love of the world may be growing in your heart to such an extent that it's choking out your love for God. Just like that seed scattered, surrounded by the thorns, choked out. So whatever we love like that, it becomes our chief good. We are so satisfied and contented with it that we desire nothing else. It is a love that cannot be shared between two objects. And Matthew doubles down on this. He says in uh, chapter 6, 24 of the Gospel of Matthew, No one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And that's love in that agape sense again. So we understand love, what kind of love we're talking about, that all-consuming love. You can only love one thing at a time. Now let's look at the second question, what is the world? 1 John 2, 16, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. What is the world? Well, in one sense, it's God's creation. That's a good thing, right? God created the world and he kept saying, it is good, it is good, it is good. So you go up to Shenandoah, you go do a little hiking in the spring or the fall, uh, or you go to the beach, you can enjoy the creation, right? I love the beach too because that's the place where God's finger came down and separated the water 
from the land, isn't it? That's why we're all drawn there. I'm like, why do we go to the beach every year? That's what it's all about. You can enjoy God's creation. That is okay. Because the material world is not a bad thing in and of itself. It is not sinful in and of itself. However, there is a system of thinking whereby you treat the material world as if that is all there is. And that is sinful. You're placing the created over the creator. That's worldliness. That's being worldly. That sinful system is worldliness. And there are plenty of Christians, okay, myself among them at many times, uh, and we don't say this out loud ever, but oftentimes we still prefer the world over the Father, don't we? Am I allowed to say that? <gasps> There's a hush. Yeah, we do, though. I mean, to create it over the Creator. We prefer earth oftentimes more than heaven. Every time we sin, we're preferring earth over heaven. That's that worldliness. So we say to ourselves, let's seek first the world with all of its delights. And then once I've had enough, once I've gotten my fill, once I've checked all my boxes, all that the world has to offer, then I'll just top off my spiritual life with a little Jesus on top. So Jesus becomes the cherry on top of everything we've accumulated in our lives in the material world. My old marshal service buddy when I was a rookie, uh, Johnny Walker. That's his name, okay? <laughs> that would have been a dark career, all right? But my old marshal service buddy, he says, uh, he goes, Blake, I'm just a squirrel in this world trying to get a nut, and I ain't got it yet. Love you, Johnny, all right? But it's not the having of that nut that kills our spirituality, okay? The world as God has made it is good. But when we love the world, that is what undoes us. It undoes us, chasing after that nut too hard. Because there are fine and godly and proper uses of God's creation. Because the world doesn't create a bad. God said it was good. But it becomes bad when we become worldly. We begin to over-love the world. We love and desire the world and the things of the world more than we should, more than we love God. We're agapeing the world. And then things get out of order. And we start seeing disorders, right? We've never had more disorders in the world than we do today because it's out of order. It's not being used the way God intended us to use it. So in verse 16, it says, we talked about the things of the world. And verse 16 says, it kind of tells us how we get to the things of the world, okay? The first two things here are desires of the flesh and desires of the eyes. We're going to talk about those real quick right now. Uh, but instead of desires, I always go to the NASB, uh, the New American Standard Bible, when I try to want, get the particulars of a single word. And the way that the NASB talks about the word desires here is lust, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes. The word lust literally means over-desire. We over-desire it. We want it too much. And over-desire and lust literally throws everything out of its proper created order. Without the love of God at the very top of our list, love acts as a speed governor or a control over everything else. 
It's over the created order. And when we take God off the top, things start flying around like crazy, okay? It's like if you don't have your, uh, your car aligned, you get a little wobble, right? It starts to pull outside of the lane. And if you don't get it fixed, that wobble gets worse and worse, and you wind up having a blowout on the beltway. There's nothing wrong with enjoying God's creation and what he gave us in his grace. But we over-desire so many things, that lust of the flesh and that lust of the eyes. And you know, lust of the flesh, that's what you have already. And lust of the eyes is what you want. You covet it. You want it, but you don't have it yet. That's that nut you keep on chasing. You know, God created the material world that we make things out of. All the things we have are created things. Whether it's clothes or cars, God created the base elements to create all those things. Whether it's the next step up in house size even. But if you over-desire them, it's materialism. You're loving the world. God gave us our bodies, right? But if we're over-desiring the perfect weight or how we look, we're loving the world. God gave us sex. But if you over-desire it, you take it outside the covenant of marriage. Now, here's how you know. Here's a test you can give yourself today if you're over-desiring something. That something weighs on your heart in such a way that we have to have it. Our thoughts are consumed with it. We daydream about getting it. What do you daydream about getting? And then you add this to it. We'll do anything to get it. So we'll lie, cheat, steal, gossip, slander to get what we really want. We'll sin. And since love is essentially a union between two things, we become joined to the world and joined to sin. It's an ungodly relationship. Listen to what Hosea says here in chapter 4, verse 17. I'll be preaching on Hosea next week, so strap, put your seatbelts on next Sunday. But Hosea 4.17 reads, A frame is joined to idols. Leave him alone. A frame was God's people. The Blake translation reads it this. You can forget about a frame. It is over. Okay? And another way you know that you're joined to the world, all right? Find whatever makes you lose your temper or whatever gets you angry or depressed, or what you get super anxious about losing or having taken away from you or not achieving someday, and you'll discover what you really love. I want you to flip that, though, for a second. Have you ever gotten angry or depressed or anxious over the lack of your relationship with Christ? I think that to myself. I get so mad sometimes at some of the things that I don't get or that I lose. Like, have you looked at your 401k lately? It's like a 301k, right? <laughs> I get a little anxious, right? But you ever think of God that way? When do we ever really get upset about our relationship with God? Listen to what Isaiah says in chapter 17, verses 10 and 11. For you have forgotten the God of your salvation, have not remembered the rock of your refuge. Therefore, though you plant pleasant plants and sow the vine branch of a stranger, Though you make them grow on the day that you plant them and make them blossom in the morning that you sow, yet the harvest will flee away in a day of grief and incurable pain. What it's saying there is if you love the world, you've forgotten the God of your salvation and you're under a curse. And here's what's going to happen. 
Whatever you have, it's never going to be enough. Whatever you get will flee from you. How many times do we say, if I just had X, and then we get X, right, and then we're happy for about a week, and then we're on to the next X. It's never enough. It flees from us. Our paychecks, the size of our house, it's always more. We've got the big house now. We've got the two new cars, right? But we're still looking for that nut, a bigger nut. I don't have enough. My nut pile's not high enough. I need more nuts. And no matter how many of those you have stacked up, there's still emptiness and pain. I had a buddy of mine. I was visiting Florida a few years ago, an old buddy of mine. I started off in the restaurant business when I was in college, and all the guys that I went to work with are still there. So I went to check in with them years ago, uh, and I'm complaining about Northern Virginia and how expensive it is and how I can't make ends meet and stuff, and my, my buddy is just a bartender or whatever. And he, and he stops. He goes, Blake, how much money do you make as a senior FBI agent? And I was like, oh, no. Because compared to what he made, he made a pittance compared to what I make. He's like, you just can't manage your money. The nut wasn't big enough for me. The nut wasn't big enough. But that emptiness and that pain in your heart, if you get the wrong nut in there, okay, you need the love of the Father to replace that. Let's look at the other part of verse 16, 1 John 2, 16. For all that is in the world, we talked about the desires of the flesh, and we talked about the desires of the eyes, right? And pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. We're going to look at the pride of life. This is the third thing that can derail us. Those desires of the eyes and the desires of the flesh are the first two things. The last derailer, and it's a big one, it gets its own section, is the pride of life, okay? It's a big one, especially in Northern Virginia. Because look, we are strong and healthy. We've got advanced degrees. We've got the education. We've got the great health care plans, the resources. We've made good decisions. Both of our parents have cared about us, right? We've applied ourselves to our jobs. We've done well. And you know what? It's okay to recognize that. It's okay. But when it crosses into all we have done in life, all we have accomplished in life, in our own strength, it becomes the pride of life. Because ultimately, our strength and our circumstances, even the outcomes, all come down to the grace of God. Listen to what it says here, what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 4, 7. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If you then received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? 1 Corinthians 1, 31. So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. As someone once said, you didn't build that. I'm not allowed to say that from here, am I? He was wrong. God is right, okay? It's all God's grace. That's always the danger here in Nova is the pride of life. Is like when we're successful, we give ourselves the credit for it. Because if you've been born in an impoverished country or a poor country, or if you've been born in Southeast D.C. even, you probably wouldn't be in the situation you are today. You know, even when we're snacking on life and we're getting all the wins because of our hard work, it isn't us. When things go well with us, when we're doing well, we're getting wealthy. And listen, performance and earning and achievement are the bedrock upon which Nova is built on, okay? Our lives are all built on that. 
But that's the opposite of the gospel. That's all earning. They're all of God no matter what. And when things go well, here's what the problem is. When things go well, there's a possibility, even a probability of what's going to happen is, is that it's going to affect our character in a prideful way. Pride is sin. And it's also not of the Father, but of the world. So our health and our energy and our vigor and our strength, all the things which God bestows on us as creator, he gave us all that, right? And what happens is instead of our physical vitality being credited to God, instead of us cultivating with care and reverence, we begin to give ourselves credit for it. It becomes pride of life. So a good example is when I was younger, I was so full of myself. I look at young Blake and I'm like, how in the world did I survive? I actually called my old best friend a, a, a couple months ago and just thanked him for kicking my butt all the time and like knocking me down, you know, because I would have been totally insufferable then. But that youthful attitude, though, I mean, it gets revealed in impatience and insubordination. And uh, we want to get away from authority. We want to get away from our home. And with all of our knowledge, we get this crude skepticism of our religion. Ah, 25 years old. Do you know that if you're 25 years old, you are the smartest you're ever going to be? <laughs> and to the one 25-year-old here, I, war- I caution you, okay? <laughs> so enjoy it while it lasts, because the older I get, the less I feel I know. And listen, maybe you're older. I think we're all older here, Okay. And we're saying to ourselves, you know, that's really not my problem. I'm so much more, and we say it humble, okay? I'm more spiritually mature than I used to be, okay? I'm mature with age. But be careful, because every 50-year-old says that. We feel like we're all sober and serious, and we're not all passionate and crazy and full of ourselves anymore like we used to be. But you know what? It's not the pride that we've lost. It's the life. We're not more holy and chaste. We're just older and tired. You know, uh, don't automatically pat yourself on the back just because you're older and don't want to stay out late at night, okay? If you had all your hormones back for your 20s, you'd be out there doing the same thing you were doing, okay? So just be careful about overestimating your spiritual maturity because, you know, we're a little bit older and tired, okay? But pride without the life. What does it look like? How can we look at pride uh, without the life when we're older? How do we look back at that? When we're older, here's what it looks like. We look at our past and and we say this. We're like, look at all I've accomplished and look at how big my retirement package is. That's pride of life, okay, when you're older. And how do you get rid of it? Listen, the way you get rid of the pride is not by getting rid of the life, okay? It's by letting the Holy Spirit turn that pride into humility. Amen. Amen. Instead of the pride of life, we need the humbleness of life. We need humility. Life has become a source of humility instead of pride. We're going to have to get real about ourselves. We're going to have to see ourselves in a truer light than some independent and self-sufficient, you got this, strength of our own pride of life. We have to get past that. It can only come through the Holy Spirit. Let us see that our lives as Christians are meant uh, not to use the independence and freedom we have to do whatever we want in our own strength, but in order that our lives may become the engines, the very conduit through which the knowledge and love of God flows. 
We are like giant cisterns, those big stone cisterns from the Old Testament. They were filled with water. They had thousands of gallons of water. We're designed to be filled with God like that to the brim. But so many times, all we really are is a bunch of greenish water on the very bottom. So, how can we defeat the pride of life? How can we defeat the desire of the eyes and the desire of the flesh? How can we humbly love the Father and abide forever with him? That is our very last point of the morning. 1 John 2.17 reads this. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. You want to abide forever? Do the will of God. Let's close in prayer. Nope. You couldn't be so lucky, all right? But John clarifies who this is that does the will of God. At the very end of his letter in chapter 5, listen to this verse. It's verse 3. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. You know you're on the right path when his commandments are becoming less and less of a burden to do them. They're less a list of uh, cosmic killjoy things we have to do and more of things that we want to do as time goes on. That's how we know we have the love of the Father in us. We keep his commandments, and they're not burdensome. God's law, and make no mistake about it, his law is his will. It is not a drag. It's actually the easy yoke. It's who we become as Christians. It's who we are becoming the more we have the love of the Father in us. Like when I do things for Tracy, it's not a burden. It's not a drag. I enjoy doing them because I love her. And it's also not doing God's will in order to get something out of God. Oh, Lord, I followed your command so much. Now just let this mortgage go through. No, that's not what it's about. We only do the will of God in order to get more of God. That's the only reason to do it. The end. But you're going to need something to happen in your heart. You're going to need a revolution to happen in your heart. Unless a greater love gets into your heart and shows you how deep your need is for God, nothing in the world can fill the black hole in your heart. Unless you see that and accept Jesus into your heart as Savior, unless you ask Jesus to overthrow all the old lovers you've invited in, you don't have a chance. Unless the true ruler and creator of the world comes and knocks and you open and you make him your Savior, unless you put him on the throne of your heart. And it's not just intellectual assent, and it's not just, this would be good for the kids to know growing up. It's put him on the throne. Because your throne, the throne in your heart is never unoccupied. There's always something in it. It's either a love of the world or it's God. Your heart is designed as a worship machine. That's why there's always something on the throne. And that's good because John also says, the world is passing away. And what John is saying here is not that the created order is passing away, but he's saying that our sinful attitude toward it is passing away. So as we grow in Christ, as the Holy Spirit changes our heart and makes us more humble, gives us more humility, our worldliness will begin to pass away. God's law will become easier, become who we are more and more. And it begins the moment you receive Jesus. 
Revelation tells us that the created order will be fully restored. All the things that are good in the world, everything God created will go back to its proper use and function and order just without the sin. But unless Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, unless he dwells in your heart, there's nothing that can replace the world on your throne. And if that is, if it's the world you worship, it's going to be bad because you won't get God and you won't get the world either. Because God's going to change the world back. Okay? It's going to be repaired by God and only his people will be in that renewed world. There's no place in recreated creation for someone who does not believe, for somebody who does not, has not asked Jesus to be their savior. There's another place for them. And it's called the lake of fire. It's my duty to tell you that, okay? You have to know. Because what if you spend your whole life chasing the world and never get to the end of it? What if you don't ever get that nut? What if you're looking for that one chief good and you never find it and the clock runs out? You are lost forever. And that's why Jesus says it's so hard for the rich to get into the kingdom of heaven. And make no mistake about it, we here in this room are the rich. And don't think, like some people have said, oh, well, there's this other gate in Jerusalem that was called the Camel Gate. And if you really sucked in your gut, you could squeeze in. No. Don't kid yourself. The problem in our society is that even when you are a believer is that there's a never-ending fight between the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes. There's a never-ending list of trinkets to strive for and toy with in your pride of life that distracts us from Jesus Christ. And Satan loves it that you are distracted. If you are a Christian, though, everything has its order. Scripture says, seek ye first the kingdom of God. And all these other things, right, the things of the world, in their proper order and use will be added to you, okay? And let me ask you about Jesus, though. The Son of Man didn't have a place to lay his head. He didn't live in the best neighborhoods or have a brand new donkey or camel, okay? He gave up the things of the world because he knew unequivocally the love of the Father. He knew he had the love of the Father with every ounce and fiber and cell of his being so he could walk away from the rest of it. If you saw the true love of the Father, if God got into your heart right now and showed you the true glory, you would go home and burn everything you had to the ground. It's like burning down like a double wide, knowing that a mansion will spring up in its place. And like Jesus said, a mansion with many rooms. We've got to learn to exchange the happiness of this world for the future joy of abiding in an eternal one. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for your word, Lord. We thank you for your created world, Lord. Please help us to kick the world off the throne, Lord, and, and, and ensconce you there permanently, Lord. Let us end this tug of war between uh, the nuts we're trying to gather for ourselves, Lord, and, and the abiding uh, Lord eternity, Lord. I pray there was someone here today, Lord, who's never had anything other than the throne of the, the world on the throne of their heart, Lord, that you would come in and sweep that world away, Lord, and install yourself, Jesus Christ as Savior, on that throne. And for Christians, Lord, uh, Lord, I pray you would, 
let us look at our lives and what makes us mad, what makes us upset, Lord, and know we can self-identify, we can be self-aware, Lord, of what we really love, Lord, and that we replace it with you. Are we more broken up over our relationship with you and our lack of prayer time and devotionals and our lack of coming to you in repentance, Lord, and we replace you, put you on that throne, Heavenly Father. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.